Killian Journey and his partners, Sebastian and Jordi, are scampering across the northeast face of Everest. The adrenaline is high, and you are there, and, and we were going pretty well, like pretty fast. Their ice picks are thudding into the snow. Clack. 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 They reach the top of a crest. We saw it coming, but we didn't want to see it, so I think we, we were pushing a bit too much. Thick white clouds are closing in on them. You can see huge plates of snow shifting above, just poised to drop. It happened that we were caught in a 2,000-meter phase with uh, big winds, with a uh, big snowfall, so everything was like an avalanche uh, trigger. Killian sank to his knees, dug his ice picks into the snow and braced himself. You don't have much time until you die if you don't go down. Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is How to Be Superhuman, Series 2. That's right, we're back, and we're ready to share more incredible stories with you. Stories about people who travel to the very limits of human endurance. Coming up in this series, we're going to hear from people like Sarah Thomas, the cancer survivor who swam across the English Channel four times, or Erdan Erich the first person to circumnavigate the globe without using an engine, solo. And Leo Wilcox, the badass endurance cyclist who beat the men to win America's toughest race. Before all that though, just a reminder of who I am. I'm an ultramarathon runner, and in 2016, I ran five times across the United States in the footsteps of Forrest Gump. I learned so much about myself and my body on that trip that it made me want to go out and meet other people doing extraordinary things. To see what else I could learn, and well, just to bring you the crazy stories. Hopefully in turn, we'll inspire you to try your own superhuman, or just human, adventure. So that's why I'm here, and why I'm so excited to get going. Now if you missed series one, you can go back and catch up right now, because there's some incredible people on there, like Diana Nyad, 64 year old, who swam from Cuba to Florida. Or Mark Beaumont, the man who cycled around the world in 80 days. But for now, stick with me, because we've got a cracker of an episode coming up. This week, we're speaking to Killian Journey, a bona fide superstar, the man who ran up Everest twice without oxygen. Now, I'm gonna be a little bit fanboy here because like, I've followed Killian for years. Not literally, of course, because you know, you'd never find me on any of those knife edge ridges, but I was really excited to get the opportunity to finally catch up with him, even if it was remotely. Yeah, yeah here you are. So I pushed the red button. He is without a doubt one of the greatest endurance athletes of our generation. As an ultra distance trail runner, he continues to dominate the sport. You see with me, I'm a more traditional flatlander, and Killian is, well, the opposite. He's an outdoorsman. He's got the engine to push the biggest gradients, the skills to handle the most technical of descents. 
And by his mid-twenties, he was huge. His sponsored trainers were known as Air Journeys. He had thousands of social media followers, but all the attention had started to get to him. So he decided to return to his roots. Not racing, but mountains. And not any old mountains. Killian was trying to set the speed record on some of the biggest names in the game. The Matterhorn, Denali, Elbrus and Everest. Killian's kindergarten was basically an altitude training camp. At the age of three, he reached his first 3,000 metre peak, more than double the height of Ben Nevis. At five, Aneto, the highest point in the Pyrenees. It's fair to say his upbringing means his connection with nature runs pretty deep. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for his mother, Nuria, to drop him and his sister off in the woods without any lights and ask them to find their way home. So we were trying to, to listen to the forest, so listen like uh, how the, the ground sounded under our feet and to hear the animals. And many times we were afraid when we were in the dark in a forest, but it's, it's nothing to worry. Like uh, it's, uh, it's just like rabbits and, and, and foxes. So it's not dangerous animals. And, and it's just to understand, yeah, we, we belong here. And I think that was the point of, of these evening walks. So your childhood was like that, then into your adolescence and your teenage years, your adventures started to become more of a solo affair. How did you start venturing out? Like I needed to move a lot as a kid and, and as a teenager even more. So I needed to spend the energy on something. I just love to, to train, to be out and to, to push myself. I remember when I was like 12, 13 years old, I was going with some older friends cycling and I, I was telling to them, I wish uphills were endless. I, I love the feeling of like going up because you are suffering and, and you are just pushing yourself. And that's what I like it when I was a teenager. I see you actually joined the uh, the Catalonia Ski Mountaineer Centre when you were 13, which is younger than you're supposed to because you were, you know, already showing some promise. What what happened there? Like, was that was that important for your development? Yeah, I believe um, it's a big difference between practicing sport and training. And that's what it changed, because when I was a kid or, or a young teenager, I was like, going to run or going to ski or going to bike, but without any plan. It was just like, I go out and I, I go for, to push myself until I'm exhausted. And then I entered the technification center and then it was like a coach and it was a, a technician. So I started to learn about training. I really wanted to train, like I wanted to seek progress. I never focus on results. Like, uh, I remember talking with my, my coach at the time, like, uh, she was always saying, we just focus on like uh, getting better on, on conversions or getting better on uphills or on downhills or physically. But suddenly, like uh, my third year on competing, I, I won the cadet. So like the young category world championship. And until that point, we had not talked about, uh, about any result. So I think it's important to just focus on training, focus on enjoying this lifestyle. And then eventually the results come. Training is it's about passions, it's about time. For me, it was uh, on the mountains. I started to go to the mountains when I was a, a young kid. So at that point, my body started to adapt and I started to learn how to put the feet on the rocks, on the snow, and the same with uh, the physical training. So it's, it's just adaptation over the years. I, I think I have like the good uh, morphology for going to the mountains. Like I'm, I'm pretty skinny, light. Uh, I have a very good recovery. 
that's uh, that's part of it. Like if I wanted to be a, a basketball player, I could be the the most passionate guy in the world. That I will not go far. Like so, of course, I think some physical capacities need to follow, but mostly is the work that you put on it. Killian suffered a potentially career-threatening injury at the age of 18. Not falling off a cliff edge, as you might expect, but jumping from one side of the road to the other, walking home from school. It's dangerous to, to run on the cities, guys. It's, it's much safer in the mountains. After being told he'd never compete at elite level again, he spent months dedicating himself to his recovery. He'd made a list of all the races he wanted to compete in, and when he had recovered, he set about ticking them off, one by one. And not only ticking them off, but winning. Repeatedly. By the time he was in his early 20s, he had achieved his dreams. And he began to feel lost. When I was like 23, 24 years old, I had won all the races that I was hoping to, to race or to eventually win when I was like 45 years old. So it was like, okay, now I'm in a point where I was expecting that it could be at the end of my career at 45 years old and I was only 22, 23. So motivation at that point, it was like, okay, what do I do? And I needed to take some time to, to set back priorities. And, and that was to go back to the mountains. And then I started to put more weight on uh, mountaineering projects that I had in mind for, for a long time. In particular, this one project he had been dreaming about ever since he was a child. I remember when I was uh, a young kid, I was reading these books uh, in the hat about uh, Walter Bonatti, about uh, Reynold Messner, about uh, uh, Louis Audebers. I had a huge picture of a Matterhorn in my room when I was a kid. So those mountains, uh, I was dreaming about them since uh, since kid, and uh, I always wanted to climb them. So it was the moment to say, okay, all what I have learned from competition, maybe I can apply on mountaineering. And that was a bit the, the founding of the project, the summits of my life. The summits of my life. Killian's ultimate dream to scale some of the biggest mountains on this planet, the Matterhorn, Denali. Everest in the fastest possible times and to do it all in the infamous Alpine style. That's no supplementary oxygen, no fixed ropes, no communication with the outside world. Killian knew that if he was to succeed, he'd need help. And so he called up his friend and one of his heroes, a guy called Stefan Bross. I remember when I started competing in ski mountaineering, he was the guy. He was the guy that was winning everything. So he was what we all wanted to be at, at one time. And then he became a, a friend. We were training together. He introduced me to steep skiing, to mountaineering. And we had this project in mind of crossing the, the Mont Blanc Range. The Mont Blanc Range, a huge set of peaks in the French Alps. To cross it might take a mere mortal weeks Killian and Stefan were going to try and do it in a couple of days. It was a beautiful day. It was everything perfect. Picture them travelling through the mountains with skis on their backs, the sun beating down on them, complete stillness in the air. It was the kind of afternoon they lived for. And after 
more than 20, uh, 20 some hours. We were in the last summit of the crossing. The final summit. Once they reached the top, it was a long ski down to the finish. Stefan led the way, a few metres in front. And a cornice uh, broke. A cornice is infamous in climbing circles. An overhanging ledge made of ice and snow. A ready-made booby trap. And that's what Stefan had stepped onto at precisely the wrong moment. And he fell to... to death. A couple of yards sat between Killian and Stefan. It could have so easily been him. I knew that it was dangerous in the mountains. I have heard and at that point I realised what it means. Uh, probably it's, it's a big difference between knowing and being conscious. Yeah, it's hard moments when you lose uh, someone that you... Yeah, some friend in the in the mountains. How did you feel when you set foot back on the mountain, knowing what had happened? It took me like uh, I would say a couple of years to to be good again. Like I I dealt with the with the grief on different ways. Like I was uh, probably for for some time I was pushing a bit too much uh, my limits. Uh, probably to see if it was the like if it was not a mistake that it was him that uh, fell and not me. Also, like I, I don't like alcohol. Like drinking, I I never drink anything. Like I I don't like the taste. And for one year, I was like getting drunk after every race, and and that was probably also a, a reaction to to the grief. But going back to the mountains, probably it was, it was where I felt connected with uh, myself and where I felt connected with 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 him because it was going back to what we love to do. Would you say that sort of after that, you know, maybe summits wasn't just for you, but it's for Stefan as well? Yeah, I think we always go back to the mountains, like uh, after the accident, like to make sense of uh, why. And it's because it's my life, it's it's our life, it's to be there, it's, it's where we feel things, it's where we can express ourselves, it's yeah, where we can find uh, life. Uh, it's, I think, to, to be alive, for me, is to be in the mountains. And it was for Stefan the same. We need to go back there and, and to keep doing things, because if not, it's, it's just to, to stop because it's difficulties or stop because it's, uh, we can eventually die. Like, it's, we all will die sometime in life. Like, it's, it's nobody that will escape that. I want to try to, to make the most of my life and to, to try to do things that that makes me happy. It's not that we are seeking death in the mountains, it's the, the contrary, we are seeking life in, in them. So uh, yeah, I needed to continue and, and probably in the project, like in all the the different summits and, and even like on every time I go to the mountains, like Stefan is there somehow. Killian kept returning to the mountains. In fact, over the next few years, he broke the speed records on both the Matterhorn and Denali. But there was one mountain that was calling his name, Everest. The record that he was going after was under 17 hours to the summit. It's not uncommon for it to take two months. Since you are a kid, if you grow up in a, in a mountain ambience like it's many books uh, about uh, these climbs in the Himalayas and I think it just calls you like it's it's interesting you think okay would I be able to be in that summit by myself would I be able to 
to climb to, to Everest uh, and, and to be able to breathe because that was a big thing. Like I know that I can run fast, but I didn't know if I will be able to to breathe at, uh, at 8,800 meters. I knew that I needed to do a lot of preparation because I, I had never been to Himalayas. What did it feel like to be amongst all these giants? Was it, was there an aura? Was there a power? It's impressive. Like you feel you feel small, and you feel like very that you are insignificant, and and that's a very great feeling. I I, I hate the word like conquer or like uh, to dominate mountains. That that's that's not true. That's that's bullshit. It's it's just like to to be able to be in these mountains to to be able to ask them if you can pass. And that feeling, it's it's overwhelming. It's just realizing how small we are. It's so beautiful. It's just the beauty of, of being up there. What are the things that makes it so beautiful? And also, what are the things that make sure that you're not going to dominate these mountains, of course, is the weather. And sort of there was a situation that happened sort of on one of your first ascents that made made you realize that Everest was not just there for the taking, right? Yeah, actually, the, the first time we were... Um, we were going in the in the summer, so we were the only expedition in the mountain. That's super cool because you have all the mountain by yourself, so it's it's pretty amazing. But the conditions were tough. And so there he was, accompanied by his friends Jordi and Sebastian, trying for the first time to climb Everest. One day that we were trying to go for a for a summit push, we were trying to open a new road in the in the northeast phase. Imagine like you are just opening a road in, in Everest and, and you are alone in the mountain. So it's like the adrenaline is high and you are there and, and we were going pretty well, like pretty fast. Everything was in their favor. They shot up the face of the mountain, 400 meters. But the weather had other plans, as it so often does on Everest. We saw it coming, but we didn't want it to see it, so I think we, we were pushing a bit too much. The clouds started to surround them, and the wind was picking up. Blue skies and sun replaced with a sea of white. They were stuck. It happened that we were caught in a 2,000-meter in a phase with uh, big winds, with a big snowfall, so everything was like an avalanche uh, trigger. That time of year, avalanches were commonplace. Only now, they couldn't see them coming. They needed to get off the mountain. Uh, you don't have much time until, uh, until you die if you don't go down. Somehow they stumbled across a ridge that would eventually lead them down to safer ground. No one's immune to that. Did that make you think, hang on, I'm being told a message here, maybe I just won't do Everest because you still had higher to go. Did you ever think about not going back? No, no, not really, actually. <laughs> um, it just, because it's not that you go to climb mountains to, to spec like uh, good temperatures and, and a relaxing uh, holiday. Like, no, if, if someone's telling you that uh, that's climbing is not, like you expect misery. Like, and that's, that's part of it. Like, uh, it's about finding the, the happiness outcoming the misery, I would say. And especially if you, you want to climb a summit, you, you, like, you know that the 50% of the times, at least, you will, uh, 
it will be a, a failure. It's just about uh, learning more and eventually one time you will be able to climb it. 50%. And Killian had made sure the odds were even more stacked against him. He returned to Everest in 2017 and this time he was on his own. Climbing without oxygen, fixed ropes, communication devices. Now, the majority of people climb Everest in stages. There's base camp, then advanced base camp, and a couple more before you reach the summit. Everything is designed to get you acclimatised and ready for extreme altitude. But Killian was planning on scaling all 8,849 metres in one go, 25 kilometres away from the foot of the mountain, right to the very top. Well, I, I, I'm a lazy person, so I don't like to, <laughs> to, to carry a tent. I don't like to, to carry food to cook up there. You don't sleep good. So at, at 5,000 meters, you sleep very good and, and it's just a village and it's, it's very cool. So uh, instead of like uh, all this misery, like if you can just uh, have a, a nice lunch and, and dinner and then just you carry a couple of things and you can go up and down, that's easier. Could you... Just take us through maybe the last 24 hours before you, you got going and, and sort of what you were feeling during that period. You don't enjoy that period because that's horrible. Like you're just sitting in a tent, like in the base camp, and you are like just looking to the weather forecast and you're thinking, okay, it's, is today better? Is tomorrow better? Is the day after? Should I wait? Should I wait for next week? And it's never the perfect day. That don't exist. So if, if you are looking for the perfect day, like you will stay in the base camp. So at some point you need to take the decision, okay, that's the goal. And, and I go at that point. Yeah. How long did you think it would take you? So you go, obviously you think, right, I want to be at the summit at this point to allow me to get down safely. So what was your planned schedule on attempt one? So on, on the first attempt, like I was uh, starting in, uh, in Rombuk. So that's pretty far. It's like 25 kilometers of like moraine before you reach the foot of the mountain and then you start climbing. Actually, it went pretty well until 7,200 meters. Like I was feeling good and I was on on time. But then actually I, I started to feel bad on like on the stomach. So I felt like diarrhea and I felt like uh, uh, vomiting. He wasn't sure whether it was food poisoning or altitude. All he knew was there was no chance of him turning back. It's so far, I don't want to do this, this long moraine again, so I, I just keep going. And the problem with, um, with that is that to stop the diarrhea or to stop the vomiting, I just stop eating. Every step, it's, it's a battle. You are battling for doing a step, for winning one meter, two meters, ten meters. And you see the summit and it's, it's getting closer, but very, very slowly. The altitude, it not only affects like the physical capacities, uh, but the lack of oxygen, it also affects the, the brain. It means that all the cognitive aspects, they slow down a lot. So thinking, it takes a lot of effort, so you don't think. You go and then like at the moment you need to take a decision, you activate the brain, you take that decision and then it's like kind of black again. So Killian kept going, kept his mind ticking over and his feet moving forwards. 
The sun had fully set by the time he reached the top and he collapsed to the ground. Mostly like you are very released because it's like, okay, yeah, I don't need to climb anymore. Like it's, it's only down from that point. So because every step is very hard. You're at the summit of Everest, the top of the world, and sort of, you know, the prayer flags are fluttering away. Did you did you want to stay there or were you conscious of the fact that you had to get down and get down quick? But like, how do you get down quick and make it safe? I, I didn't want to stay long because it was in the in the middle of the night first. So it's, uh, it's not that I could enjoy the views. And then I knew that I was very tired. I had not eaten anything for the last 10 or 12 hours. So I needed to go down. I stay maybe like a couple of minutes and then I just started to to go down because the journey it's it's a very long reach to go down. Yeah, because like that surprised me a little bit because everybody imagines you to almost be like sort of, you know, steaming through as if nothing had happened. But of course, with you traveling light, you didn't take a radio and you took a lot longer than you planned to take. And people at base camp were very, very worried. And, you know, the questions will inevitably be asked, maybe not spoken, but people must have thought, is he coming back? You don't think much about um, about what other people think or that because... You are in your thing, and if you start to to think about external external inputs, that can be very dangerous. I would say because you will not take the same decisions. So uh, no, I, I was just doing my thing, going down as 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 fast as I could. That that's very slow, and of course people worry. But like I think we live in a too much connected world on that. And what I love about expeditions is that I have time for myself and to be disconnected. So uh, I remember like uh, my mentors, when they were going to Himalayas, they were saying, okay, we go to Himalayas, you will have some news in three months. And now if someone don't send a message like every two hours, like it's, where is this person? Where is this person? So we need to come back a bit more about uh, these silence moments because it's what we are looking for in the mountains. How did you feel when you could see base camp and, you, you know, sort of you'd probably got beyond the point where you realised you were going to be safe, you know, because you're on the less steep slopes, the less dangerous slopes. But when you could actually see the finish line, how did that compare to one of the famous races that you may have run? Well, like, it's not adrenaline there because, like, when you finish a race, it's like, boom, adrenaline, and you feel super energetic. There, you don't have that. Like, there you are, like, out of energy. So it's like... You really want to get to the point and you are super, super happy inside, but you cannot express that because because you don't have energy. So you are just like, you're like a zombie. You are there like, oh, I'm very happy here. But uh, I think it's a, it's a feeling of happiness that it, it uh, invades you for a very long time. He was happy because he'd done it. Up and down Everest in 26 hours. An incredible achievement but over nine hours short of the record. And it wasn't just the record that was eating away at Killian. We were in the base camp and it was like, okay, we have one week until the, the plane, like home is leaving. Uh, I don't like playing cards in the base camp. We will not be one week just here sitting in a tent. Uh, it's the mountain is there. We have the permit for the mountain. And then I started to think, okay, it might be cool to see what happens if I go up again, uh, physiologically, how the recovery is, uh, what it means to spend so many hours in, in altitude. So it was a bit more this kind of theoretical question about uh, being in altitude for so long that I wanted to try. And then it was like um, four days after going down from the first summit, I, I, I was uh, going for another push. Four days 
people spend months recovering from Everest. But as we've already discovered, Killian isn't people. Can you tell us about, you You mentioned something before, which I found interesting, your capacity to recover. Tell us about your superhuman recovery skills. Well, I I wouldn't say like superhuman, like it's a very stupid thing I do. Like it's, I, I run faster, so I, 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 I'm I better to put the feet after the other feet a bit faster than other people. So it's not like a big talent for, <laughs> for, Sounds easy. for that. But yeah, it, it is like, uh, if you like it. No, but yeah, I, I, I'm good at recovery. Like since kid, I... I have been recovering very well, like, and that's uh, something that it is not only affecting, like during a race, for example, when you are going down, that you will be a bit more relaxed for the next uphill, but it's also during training. Like if you are recovering better, it means that you can train more uh, the day after you will make adaptations. So it's, um, yeah, probably that was my gift. That was his gift. And this time there was no dodgy stomach. He reached the summit in 17 hours, agonizingly shy of the record. It was pitch black, again, so he wasn't hanging about. Killian started his descent. On the way down, everything was was normal until I reached uh, 8,300 meters. And there, I don't know what happened. Everything went black. I don't remember anything. When I woke up, kind of, I found myself down climbing in a phase. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know if I was in the north side, if I was in the south side of the mountain. I didn't know if I was uh, just uh, sleeping in my tent in the base camp and that was just a nightmare. Yeah, I, I was kind of lost. I didn't know where I was. So I started to down climb this phase until a point that I say, okay, I, that's, that's no reason because I don't know where I'm going. Uh, I, had so, I started to have some hallucinations, but I was conscious that those were hallucinations. Something had changed in his brain. He'd entered into a dreamlike state with thoughts firing off randomly. He was no longer on Everest. In fact, he had no idea where he was. And then you start to have these thoughts like, maybe I'm just sleeping in the base camp, so maybe I'm just sleeping in the base camp, so maybe I just need to wake up. Then you start thinking, okay, if I, if I jump like uh, with impression, you know, like you will wake up. If I'm in the mountain for real, maybe I just need to wake up. And I do that, that would be a very big mistake. When all these thoughts started to be there, I said, okay, that's, now it's time to stop. He found a place to take cover and battled to regain control of his mind. Uh, the brain started to work better. I started to look to, to my watch. Uh, I saw that uh, the altitude was 8,000 meters and I looked to the GPS coordinates. I discovered that I was in the middle of the North Face, so that I don't know why, I was just doing a huge crossing in the face instead of going down. On Everest, there are set routes up and down. To stray from those routes could be lethal, and Killian had veered sideways, 500 metres off track. At that point, I, I realized that uh, I, uh, I had, uh, yeah, that I, I needed to go down and find a way. And at 7,600 meters, it's kind of an easy slope that enters the North Face. So I remember these pictures that I had seen before. So I needed to find a way to, to down climb 400 meters. And then it was pretty easy to, to traverse and to go down to the base camp. So I, I started to, to down climb and, and find this, uh, this exit. 
and then uh, and then kind of hurry to the base camp because uh, we had the plane like two days after. So I needed we needed to go down to the base camp, pack everything, and take the car that same day to Lhasa to to take the plane home. So Killian arrived back home in Norway. Talk of his double summit of Everest had been circling the internet and the debate was raging. He had a GoPro. Why didn't he film himself at both of his summits? What was his GPS data? And how did he even do that? It's it just like how I seek adventure. Like I want to be there and to be able to take the decisions by myself. So it's no one like talking all the time in the phone. You need to do that. You need to do that. I did everything was possible to record it. And, and I think it's... It's a lot of things like today we have GPS, we have like cameras that they have like a GPS position. So compared to, to some years ago, it's it's very easy because we can have this access to technology. When you do sport, like it will be people that likes what you do, some other people that don't. I don't like to live on that because then you are not living your life, you are living the life of the others. And, and I think at the end, the important is to, to know what you do, to try to do it the best as possible. And, and then to, to keep going because it's, it's that that drives us. Certainly there was one individual, you know, he, he really made a point of going after it, sort of questioning a lot of things, you know, and sort of, like, have you ever actually spoke to him to address his points? Because his main ones were, you know, where was the GPS data and stuff? And we've all, you know, we've all had our phone battery die on us at, at the crucial moment. But then he was saying, well, why did it happen twice? You know, and like, what, what, what would you say to him in, in that situation? Yeah, like actually, I had I had been talking with uh, with him. Like uh, I had the GPS recordings from both up uh, ascents, and I had the pictures with the GPS um, position in both ascents. But like when I give that to him, then he was claiming about uh, other things. So it it was like kind of finding the the point where I didn't have it. it was like okay, yeah. I, uh, I have all these. Uh, what more do you want? Uh, I give you. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. Some people just want to look to what others do because uh and not to what they do and when you are talking with uh these people it's just like okay you give all the information they can check but if they want to to stay in their in their talk uh then it's probably because something else another like sort of armor that criticism comes from some what what you would say the purists of the mountaineering community you reckon that speed has got no place in sort of in in alpinism now as someone who's such a keen student of the history the physiology and well you know the, the art of climbing like what do you say to them because that must hurt because you know you are a mountain man it's it's your life well like this this criticism actually it often comes from People that goes to mountains, but not from elite uh, alpinists, because like when you see the story, like speed, it has always been there. Like alpinism is about exploration, it's about difficulty, and it's about the speed. So when you see uh, like uh, from the 1900, like Paul Preus, uh, Claudio Barbier, they were noting the times that they did climbing in the Dolomites. It's mostly, I think, from not from the top alpinist or, or from the people that is there like every day, but from more like other people that it just like don't understand this, this connection that uh, speed is also about the style. Uh, it means that if you go light, you go fast as a consequence. In terms of like uh, alpinist and alpinist progression, speed has always been there. 
Yeah, I'm just glad that you're able to just shut off that noise and just carry on sort of on, on your own path. Now, coming back to, you know, your, your hero, Stefan, like I, I heard um, sort of him say an unbelievable thing in the documentary, which is, you know, what does it mean to be free? And he said to be free is to choose your own path. You know, sort of, I've heard a lot of uh, sort of like profound remarks, but that really struck me. And I've been thinking about it for the last week since uh, since I heard it. And just listening to you today, I've got no doubt that you must be one of the freest individuals on the planet, maybe that's ever lived, because you do choose your own path and you're still continuing to choose your own path now. So where does that path lead? What's next? It's hard to to say where did we lead in the in the very future. For me, it's it's about uh, it's about exploration internally. So like to see what are my capacities and to to explore my body and my mind, and then exploration externally is to to go to other mountains and to have different projects and ideas. And two years ago, I had never run on a road for more than a couple of miles because I thought that it was the the dumbest thing that someone can do. It was the most boring <laughs> thing. And, and and this year I did some road running races. So. Uh, that was something that only two years ago I would say I will never, never, never do that. So actually, it was just like super fun to explore that and to see what I am able to do. But of course, like my path is on the mountains. So it's it's mostly about this vision of being free on the mountains and being connected to the nature and connected to the mountains mm. that I, I do things around so it uh, it helps me to go there. What a story. Killian's spending a bit of time at home now, looking after his young son. But I imagine he'll be running up a mountain before he's out of nappies. If you have anything to say about Killian's story, well, just tweet us using the hashtag RedBullHowToBeSuperhuman. Also, please do send us your own superhuman tales. We'd love to hear what you guys have been up to. And remember to follow the podcast, rate it, and leave a five-star review because it helps other people discover the show. We appreciate it when you share the love. Finally, if you want more from the series, like articles or pictures, just head to redbull.com superhuman. Next time on How To Be Superhuman, it's the cancer survivor who swam across the channel four times in one go. In your head, you're thinking, this is not good. I've done long swims before. I'm at the 24 hour mark and I feel dead. 